This week, we have a special guest who is an American sound and radio engineer, most well-known for creating the template for modern rock sound systems. He founded the company Heil Sound. We will have more on the Bouvet Island, the latest news from ARRL, and much more. Hello and welcome to the Ham Radio Guy. And good morning or afternoon, whatever time you might be listening to this podcast, it's your host, Marvin, W0MET. We're bringing you the latest of topics, news, and information each episode right here to this show. Hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and enjoy each episode of this show. I would like to go ahead and welcome to the show, Bob Heil, K9EID. Good evening, Bob. Well, hi to you, Marvin, and all that that are watching and listening. Glad to be here. I just I love to share the science of this great hobby that we call ham radio. I've been involved since 1956, and I uh, <laughs> every day of my life I do more and more, and it's just wonderful to be able to share it with people. So thanks for having me. Aren't you supposed to be retired though? <laughs> well, that's a Bad rumor that's running around. I don't know where that got started, but I think I know. Sarah retired last year. She was the president for 20 years, but somehow I got looped into that. <laughs> I have a new title, but no, I'm still designing, working. I was at the plant today and working on some projects, but no, I have not retired. I don't want to retire ever. I'm having too much fun. Absolutely. That's what keeps you going every day, right? So... It is a blast, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm in Belleville, Illinois. We're about 15 miles straight east of the Great Arch of downtown St. Louis, near Scott Air Force Base. Oh, sure. I know where that's at. Yeah, very good. Been through there many times going to Kansas City to see my family. So I uh, know exactly where you're at, yeah. roughly. So everything else is good health-wise and whatnot? Yep. Good. good. Had a little battle with COVID. Oh, boy. <laughs> We're just coming out of that nonsense. But no, I'm I'm good. Yeah, well, same here. I've just been, it's been quite a kind of a winter. I've had a few sniffles and, you know, things going on as well and some coughs and finally got through most of that and feeling much better now and feel I can get back onto the show here too and not have to worry about, you know, having an episode or something in the middle of the of the show. So how long have you been an amateur radio operator then? So we'll go down that road and kind of start talking about some sound and things from there. Well, I'll give you a little tour of what's going on in my life and how we got there. At the age of 10, I was I started playing the accordion. A couple of years later, my parents, and they were not wealthy, they bought me a Hammond organ, a B3. That was uh, something. I was 12 years old, and I really started uh, listening and paying attention and, and learning how to Hammond. And I taught myself uh, listening to the records and stuff. And uh, two years later, I got a job in a restaurant making my teachers, and I uh, I loved it. Well, then next year, 1956, I became the substitute organist at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. It was a 5,000 uh, theater, still there. The organ is still there, and I love playing it. There I was at 15 years old, though. But what's so important and why I bring this to you the organ hadn't been played in 20 years. Stan Can was the organist, and he needed somebody to help substitute them and to help tune and voice those pipes. And uh, what does all this have to do with ham radio? It's where I learned to listen. And that was so important. Because so many people hear 
but they don't listen. And that's where I really got into listening to sound and understanding it and so on. Hearing is a physical process. Everyone hears. But listening is a mental process. I had to dig out all of the nuances, all of the harmonics and things like that. Well, later that year of 56, I got a ham license. One of my high school chums became canine DTQ. And so I figured it'd be a fun thing. The Harvey Wells you see there, SX99, some of that is still with me. I'm an AM freak. <laughs> that console is all the AM stuff. You can't hardly see it, but down in the bottom, you can just see the top of it there. That's that same Harvey Wells, and it still works. I'm on the air every morning at 9 a.m. on 3885. We have a group that gets that was a big deal. Well, I continued to play at the Fox, but then in 1960 was really something for me. I was able to play the Paramount Theater on Times Square on a four-manual Wurlitzer. The building today is uh, the uh, restaurant or what do you call it, but Paramount Theater was something. I, I really, really was honored to do that. But I traveled all over the country playing different venues and stuff. How old were you at that point, Bob? There I was 19. Wow, that's incredible. I can't imagine being 19 years old and playing a big theater like that back then. <laughs> yeah, it was great. The Fox called me one day and said, hey, we're throwing out our old speaker cabinets wanted to know if if you would like to have them. And I said, well, uh, I can do that. Yeah. Hams don't throw anything away. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> I grabbed a pickup truck and the, the, the speakers you see on the right, those are 1932 Western Electric 16-foot uh, folded horns. There were four of them. I also garnered another couple beside loads from another theater, and I started building sound systems, big ones. I started a plant, had 35 people there, and got into fiberglass, metal, and wood. They sometimes resonate weird. And so I, I met up a guy that was in the fiberglass business, and we started a fiberglass plant at Heil Sound to build. We built thousands of radial horns and all of that. And we were uh, Building our own power amplifiers. They were modular. You see, bottom, if you, uh, a lot of local playing in clubs and stuff, you buy an amplifier and you go out. If something happens and it blows up, what do you do? You go home. No, no, not with Heil Sound. You had a parts kit that came with your amplifier, your mixers. In about five minutes, you could pull that thing out of the case, plug in a new module, send that one back to me. It was wonderful. The next thing you know, word got out that I had the sound system. And I really wasn't into rock and roll. I mean, I, I was playing around the country doing all of these shows, but I loved because of my ham radio, I could build all of these things. And the first show, the big show that I did was Hendrix, Janet Joplin opening. It was really great fun. Met up with Joe Walsh and his gang. It really escalated from there. It went crazy. All kinds of groups. There's a whole story about the Grateful Dead. We became really good friends with Terry Garcia, Pete Townsend, 
of course, Joe, we're still great friends. I love working for these guys and we became very close and we're, we still are. I just lost one of them a couple of weeks ago was Jeff Beck. I love Jeff. I built a special sound system because he started playing smaller theaters and needed things that we could get in and out quickly in his theater and trucks and cranes and all that to get the big stuff in. It was really a wonderful time. Joe uh, had done an album in Nashville at Bill and Dottie West's studio. Pete Drake was also there. And Pete was a great steel guitar player. And he had taken a little three-inch speaker in a funnel and put a hose on it, put it in his mouth, drove that speaker with the output of his guitar amp. And so then he uh, could make it talk. He had a 1950, he had a hit song called Forever, and it became very popular. Well, fast forward that, Joe recorded Rocky Mountain Way in 1971 or so. In 1972 and three, we started putting stuff together for Barnstorm, his new solo band. What are we going to do? He said, I, I want to do that talk thing, but... And a little three-inch speaker's not going to make it. So what do you do with two ham radio operators and a soldering iron? We came up with a high-powered talk box. I built five of them. They were 250-watt drivers. Joe recorded, and he still has it on the road with it. I got a one day. A little gal was living in my town of Marissa, Illinois. It was 50 miles southeast of St. Louis. We had several road crew crew that were working there uh, at the plant, and they would live in Marissa for some years. One of them, the tour manager for Humble Pie, married little Penny, Penny McCall. I hadn't seen her in a couple years. They all went their way. I got a call one day from her in 73, and she said, hey, I'm with Peter Frampton now, and I want to get him a Christmas present, but don't send him guitars. He's got a lot of them. So what did I do? (laughs) Of course I did. I sent her a talk box. You can write the rest of Peter's history. That's Penny down at the bottom. And there's my production table where we were building hundreds of talk boxes. We're still really good friends. But my life changed drastically in 1972, big time. I got a call from Paul Klipsch. Paul Klipsch was the father of hi-fi. He was the father of the folded home. He did a lot of things. He said, I want to come and see you. You got that 6KWPA system? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, I want to come and see that. Well, it was actually 8,000, but I didn't argue. He flew <laughs> from Hope, Arkansas, and all day, well, why did you do that? Well, where'd you learn to do that? Uh, I'm radio. No, like, what college did you go to for engineering? I didn't. I barely got out of high school because, remember, I had quite a career going. I I didn't care about school. I did graduate, barely, but I didn't remember having it. I didn't need it. I was too much engrossed in ham radio and building sound systems. He put me in his plane that afternoon, and we flew down to Hope. Those couple of days were absolutely amazing. It was really my beginning of my college education. Paul was such a great guy. He's kind of cantankerous, old, all of that, but he taught me so much. He guided it to me. He didn't do it that day. What you see in the bottom corner there is his lab. It was an old telephone and change building that was vacated. 
boy, so much went on there. I spent a, a whole day just learning and doing. And one of the things that he did was he gave me this. And what is this? This is the audio cyclopedia. This is another part of my college education. It's 1,750 pages about audio. And it's still with me. I still refer to it. It was really a big part of that meeting. That book is three inches thick. But Paul then sat me down. He said, listen, you got to know about the early telephone system. I think it would help your PA system. What's going on here? Well, the early telephone system was very interesting. They ran two wires from New Jersey to California. And every 500 miles, they relay station that kept the frequency up and the level up and all that. But when they got to the other side, out to California, this is what they heard. It's like real mushy and bassy and had no articulation. What are we going to do? This is going to be terrible. So let me get this back up here where we can understand. All I'm <laughs> doing is turning one control. Wow. And we'll get into that in a minute. So how do I fix this? What's wrong? Well, they put 4,000 scientists. Yes, there were 4,000 of them in those days at Bellabs. The two main leads were Dr. Fletcher and Dr. Munson. I truly that some of you know about Dr. Harvey Fletcher and Dr. Weldon Munson because what they discovered is you do not just hear flat. You just heard flat. And what did it get you? Difficult to hear, mushy, all that. What they came up with was the Fletcher-Munson curve of the human ear. Now, what you got to look at here, up at the top, B or more, if you listen, it's almost flat. That's why kids like to listen to their music loud. They hear the bass, they hear the mid-range, they hear the treble. Beautiful. But what down here, 20 or 30 dB of level that you'll listen to things. Look at it. It looks like a ride at Disneyland. And what all these great engineers came up with was this. That 3K bandpass of the telephone company. And they discovered that they had to make sure five was there. You're going to hear a lot of that from me today. Here, I'll take it out. I'm only turning one knob. That is on a parametric equalizer, and that got rid of all that mid point five. Everything else stayed the same. But it sounds like it turned the bass up. No, I took everything else away. That was all that was left. Now, in a minute, I hit two five. You're going to go, wow. Now the F and the S and the P and the B, they're so distinguishable. Because without it, the F and the S is not really discernible. Got to really listen. So we want that five. The minute I hit 2.5 on the parametric, it's like, wow. But now that they discovered it, what are they going to do about it? They didn't have organization in 1920. What did they do with it? Well, they did have filters. And they built a high-pass filter of capacitors and resistors. The audio goes through, depending on the size of the capacitor, it goes through what you want. Then 
if you take a resistor to ground, you can lower the bass. You can get root mushy bass. I also, just for funds, put the high low filter. It's the reverse of that. That knocks out all the highs. The bass goes through the resistor and the highs go to ground through the cap. We don't want that. But that just gives you an idea what can be done with it. And so what was really incredible, from 1920, 1967, the world was void of serious equalization. Void. I had heard that Longevin, which they built mixers and, and all kinds of audio things for the movie industry in Hollywood. I had heard they came out with a new mixer. And I thought, wow, this would be good because all that any of us that was in the business in those days, all that we had to use for uh, mixers, things like this. Line mixers, we call them from the broadcast industry. They had no EQ on them. Green mixers, what I did so many of those first jobs with Janice Chopler and then Joe, of course, I did a lot of shows with uh, James Gang, Jimi Hendrix. That's, what, that's all we had. The way you equalized it was what kind of amplifiers you would have and what kind of speakers. Some were these speakers, one were mid-range, some were tweeters. And by splaying them to different parts of the arena or theater, you could create a little bit of help to be able to understand. Well, I had heard that launching was coming out. So I go to California, 1967, walk in, and this is just incredible. What did I see? At. Whoa. Because mixing with uh, knobs, like you can't see where they are. You needed this. That was the first slider that I saw. Oh, my gosh. I went nuts. So I told him I wanted to buy two of those. That would give me 16 channels. Well, before you go, I'm going to show you on a release here in a month or so. A lot corner. You can imagine. Now, maybe you can't because you lived in a world of equalization. I saw that. I about freaked out. Altec and Longevin were working together to bring the first graphic equalizer. And, uh, oh, man, I look where I was up there between two and three Ks were high. A little bit of bass, I wouldn't want that much. So I bought two mixers. I bought, it was a compressor limiter, actually, and the two meters. But over on the right side, you, you can hardly see it. There's a burst from the flash of the camera. That's the equalizer. Well, you can imagine Heil Sound going into an arena now with that. I had a carpenter build me this beautiful walnut cabinet. I mean, that really launched tile sound big time because we were doing things that nobody else was doing. And so many of the guys, where'd you learn to do all this? Ham radio. No, like, what in there? I didn't go. What are you talking about? You got to. Nope. Ham radio. I don't know how many thousand times in my career I had to explain to people what a great thing that was. So... I got out of that business. When punk rock came in, I said, see you later. All the people that I worked with, Townsend, Walsh, Brampton, all of those wonderful people, we were good friends. The punk rockers were absolutely not in that category. 
and they want to build other things. No, you mean this sound system that I did the who in Walsh? That's not good enough. No, we want you to do this or that. And I'm like, okay, tell you what, bye. And I got out of the business. I had been in it about 12, 13 years. I come back to ham radio. Why not? But, hmm, wait a minute. What happened to my great art call audio? Huh? It's all bassy and highly distorted. They had compressors and didn't know how to use them. And it's like, oh, no. So I thought, I got to do something. By the way, I was a technician for 17 years. Six meters wide open, 1956 for 10 years. It was an amazing time. If you were there, you'll have to agree. Six meters. It was open all day, all the time. I'd come home from the restaurant where I'd play or the theater. Six meters still open. It was great. But I started listening to some of these guys, and they were real bassy and mushy. And What's the radios? Well, they were all things I'd never heard of. Yesu and Icon. What, what is all that stuff? I soon learned that they became the main thrust of ham radio. Oh, for sure. Those are the major brands. All the tube radios went by the wayside and all that. And so I thought it was time that I did something. I borrowed some of the ideas from John Volkman, who did some of the early passive equalization back in 1920. And I built this. It was a year of experimenting. The right spot for those two filters. You see, we're only 3K wide. So I feel that we need 10 bands. You know, do you see guys today, I got a 31 band. You have a 31. What are you doing with 31 bands in 3K? Well, you can't. You're just kidding yourself. Oh, yeah. Well, their ego is bigger than their mind because there's no way you can do that. And there's a couple of commercial rigs out there right now. Big names from Japan. They got 13 bands in them. Give me a break. Come on. So anyway, I built this wonderful little equalizer. I had a 520. It was my first two big uh, nuances. And it was made. Everybody's asking me, what are you doing? How do you make that audio so clear? Well, you do it by rolling off the bass. That was 160 hertz. And absolutely wide open on the 2.5. You can balance them out a little bit. And this thing... A lot of play. Well, I wrote an article and I sent it to the league. They came back. We've been researching. There's never been anything in amateur radio find about equalization until this. They printed it. It became the lead article and cover award. I was absolutely just blown away. Like I, I really didn't think it had that much going on. But then a little later. I get a letter from Dr. Inouye, Inouye Communications, ICOM's founder. Sure. He had a picture of his station, and he had one of these. He had one of my Goldine mics on a boom. I was the first guy to bring booms to this industry commercially. Wow. Why? Because you can hear me today. You hear me on the air. I'm never sitting with a microphone. It's on a boom and I'm soldering or writing or doing something. I'm <laughs> exactly. always doing different things. True story. And so that's why I brought booms. He said, I'm thinking of new radio line and I want to use 
EQ 200. And so history is here. Pro 1, Pro 2, Pro 3, all the way through ICOM line to the 7610, the great 7851, and the wonderful little 705. They all have my EQ 200. So they still carry that to the present day then? Uh, yeah, it's in all their radios. Yeah. But mm, the big problem became adjusting it. You have to figure out, first of all, when you sit down at a radio, what are you going to do? You're going to be in net control? You're going to DX? You're going to just rag? You have to be very careful and understand what you want to do because you want to set the bandwidth. The transmitter bandwidth is so important. Most of the transmitters are 3K wide or they, they can go 3K wide. You set that up and it's going to look something like this for a rag chew. The first thing that you do, set that TBW, transmit bandwidth. And what you do there is you're going to set it to 100 to 3,000 or 2,900. Some of them go to 3K. Going to rip the base minus you punch up the treble to three or so and you're ready to go. And if you're going to do uh, any kind of contest or net control, you pick out the narrow bandwidth, 500 to 2,500. Well, why do you do that, Heil? It's very important. First of all, you open the 2.5, the treble, open it. Then you're going to narrow up the bandwidth. And I have a great demonstration about how that happened. What happens if you do the 3K? It's kind of you know it's level, and everybody's pretty much in tune. In the middle, you got 2.5. But what happens if you're going to do DX work and you narrow that 500 to 2500, and you got 2.5 open? Look where all your RF is going, huh? Yes, right where you want it. That's why when you listen to a contest station, he is in your face. That's the way we want it. I don't need bass. I don't need to be sounding pretty. I need my speech right in your receiver. And then for Rag Chew, you're, you might want to back it down a little bit, 327. But you can do so much with your equalization. That makes me sad because once in a while, I hear guys that are not taking me hold of that. So my question is, as people have their radios, and whether it be a Yesu or an ICOM, and, and they have to adjust their radios like that, is it really adjusting it for each of the contest versus a rag chew uh, versus net control? Or is it where you can set the settings and be standard across the board for all your different levels within the radio? Because I think when I set my Yesu that way, is that all the sounds were... I was able to go into the settings and kind of adjust it for each of those different levels, all for, you know, just normal everyday settings. So is that something you have to adjust every time or is that just something that you can set once on the radio and be done? Well, that's what I like to do. I set it, uh, lay a roll of low end off at about 200, two and a half, somewhere in there, because I don't like a lot of bass. It does you no good. Oh, I sound like a DJ. I don't want a DJ. Go get a DJ job. <laughs> We're an amateur radio. Right. We're trying to be communicators. 
Okay. Some of these guys get so involved. They got more money in their EQ junk than they do their transmitter. And it's it's not right. But do what you want. I'll come back to a little bit in a minute. Dr. Inouye also asked me to build them the proper microphone. None of these companies build their own microphones. Oh, that comes as a shock. Well, it came in the box aisle and it's got the name on it. But they didn't do it. They didn't design it. They buy it from an OEM microphone manufacturer. And you've been fooled all your life. Yeah, I think most people are. He said, build me a proper microphone. And we did. The ICM, it won't work on a Kenwood, Yesu, nothing. Only ICOM. Because ICOM is very strange. They have uh, about eight volts of phantom power down the same mic line to power up the electrics. It's in there. But their electrics are really cheap and dirty. We have very wonderful studio type that microphone thing, and so that's really fun. But what are we going to do by Yesu? Do you guys still produce that microphone today? Oh my God, yeah. It's one of our big sellers. Wow. Because ICOM is very popular and it solves so many problems. They are now using that element in the hand mic of the 7300. What about Yesu? About a year or so after. The icon, Dr. Asagawa, who is a large Japanese guy, his family owns Yesu. He comes in my booth at Dayton. He said, I want to talk to you. I said, what are we talking about? He said, I want to talk about the EQ. I want to do it better. Oh, let's step out of the booth here. <laughs> and I said, well, the only way we could do that to be better would be parametric. Not so fast. Why? Well, here. I, after lots of experiment and so on, I know what those filters should be. 2.5K, 160. Okay. But with a parametric, check this out. The top picture is of a symmetric 52080. Every broadcast station in the world has one of these. Compressor, limiter, de-esser, all that. But the bottom picture is the middle of it. That's all I wanted to do. We built parametric equalizer. Now, here's the situation. With this little guy, you don't have to worry about where they are. But with a parametric, there are nine controls. Nine of them. Nine of them, and you don't know where any of them go. You have to figure it out. And the first transmitter I did for them was the 9000. It was just a great project. It's a wonderful transceiver. It's got a balanced line in. That's another thing that I bargained for and got my way. It's the only transmitter, ham radio transmitter, that has a three-pin XLR. It's balanced, plus and minus and ground. And I don't know why they all don't do this, because it really solves a lot of RFI problems. Because you have a plus and you have a minus. And together, they work very nicely. If anything comes that are not plus or not minus, the preamp doesn't see it. So if RF comes on this, it's not plus or it's not minus. Your transmitter never sees it. And that's a wonderful thing. And I really was proud. That went on for a couple of years and then they dropped the XLR, but they still kept the preamp. It's a balanced line differential preamp and they don't use it. It's there. Wow. They just unbalance their mics and leave it 
well. All of our microphones that we build, with the exception of just a couple, they're all balanced line. And if you know how to wire it, well, we build the cables to do that. You plug it in and you're balanced. ICOM, Kenwood, all of them. And they don't know it. They don't use it. I just don't understand this. These are the engineers. What do you do about the Yesu? My gosh, you have all of these buttons. And here's how you do it. It's very simple when it's the concept. Let's look at just one of the filters. Remember, there's three of them. You set the frequency. We're going to set the first one at about 200, the level. You're going to boost or cut it. We're going to boost it. What about the third? That's the audio bandwidth. And it's usually an octave, one being the widest, 10 being the narrowest. So here's what it looks like. It's very simple. I fuzzed out all the other stuff that just puts the nomenclature with the R. Forget that. Here we go. The top, I set 200 minus three, two octaves of bandwidth. I'm going to question it. Just set the bandwidth at two to start with. You can play with it. Twins at 900. Wait a minute. Why 900? All of my audio life, there's something about 600 or 900 or so. It's boxy. You do this to your ears while you're talking, and you'll hear that boxy sound. You want to get rid of that boxy sound. So 900 minus three or four, two octaves of Where are you going to put? And of course you are. 2.5K. Now you can feather these out a little, but it's basically. And so those are the things that we need to know about. Only their manuals are terrible. I designed it. I told them you're going to have a problem with it. Education. Oh, it would be okay. Oh, it's terrible. You look and they got all these graphs. I can't even figure out what they're trying to tell us. Here's what they should have done, and it's on our website. Very simple. There are three filters 200 minus two plus three or four, whatever you want. Whatever you want to do on that bandwidth. 900 to two octaves. 200 plus eight. And that really is it. Now, they also have in red, if you use the compressor, you've got to re-equalize all of them. But I got news for you, and you're not going to agree with me probably, but don't use compression. You do not need compression. All it does is cause you to splatter. It causes your signal to distort. What does it do? Makes me louder. No, it doesn't. Interesting. It makes you louder, but not cleaner. Forget it. Equalization, proper microphone, and how to use the mic. We're going to get into that in a minute. And it really is wonderful if you set those and have fun with it. I've got my Yesu ready. I've had to go through and set all those very specifically on Yesu. I think those settings that you have are almost exactly what I've got in there too. And that's, I think it is important to have those settings for volume and, and sound. You can move that filter around low, mid and high. You can spread it out, the audio bandwidth and so on. But this really disgusts me. Kenwood came to me and said, we're going to do this big expensive radio. And you did the other two. What about us? I came up with this. Of course, I rolled off the low end. First of all, you do not need 13 bands. You do not need that. Who did this? <laughs> it frightens me that that's an engineer that did that. You're only 3K wide. You can't use all that. Right. 
Well, this is what them. This is what they have in their manual. Look at that. They raised low end. They had no 2.5 rate. I just, oh, I went crazy. Really want to do something cool and you don't have EQ? You go to W2IHY. What a great little box that is. But notice how I set it up. I roll off the low end and what we call feather it up to the zero mark all across. You feather it back up to 2.5. It's really quite simple. I just love sharing some of this with everybody. One other thing that's really important, and I swear to gosh, nobody seems to think about it. And that happens to be what you want to do. You never want your RF gain wide open. Never. You want it only about a half to three quarters. And you're going to say, well, then I can't hear the wikis. Oh, yes, you so you can. That's interesting because I usually do keep mine more wide open. Lower the RF gain. What's going to happen? The noise goes away. It really takes all of the noise floor down. If you use it wide open, holy smokes, that's not going to work well. And I never read this. I never hear about it. And it bugs me because most people just got to have knobs to the right. No, never. Use the RF gain wide open. I never have it more than about half, and you'd be surprised, even on weak, weak signals. I'll have to crack that on my end then. <laughs> it really works. I also think everybody should have a scope. You can buy it a ham fest for 50, 60 bucks, things that cost $1,000 years ago. But hey, hey, hi, I don't see any uh, SO239. How do you fit that? Well, I'm going to make you get out your soldering iron. <laughs> you go to Antique Electric Supply, and if you don't take anything more away today, write this down. Antique Electric. Boy, do they have cool parts. Everything. You buy a little box, a couple of coax connectors. I use a piece of RG8. You just tie them together. This is just a box. We're going in and out. See you later. But you do a voltage divider, 51K to 680 to ground and at the center of that tap off a 0.04 that's connect to the scope and now you can see your signal to know if you're flat topping if you're distorted and all that i mentioned a while ago about using your microphone i hear many of uh, signals like this and i just freak out uh, i want to come through the speaker but i don't they're two or three way Oh, hey, how's this, Bill? Well, here's what happens when you do that. You see, Kyle, you just turn up the gain. Okay, what do I do there? <laughs> you turn up the gain, and it sounds like I'm in a roller rink. It does. And this is in a studio with non-parallel walls. The ceiling's not flat. We do all that to keep the standing waves of the sound. Oh, not happening. But what are you going to do? Well, remember this? <laughs> Your three-inch encyclopedia. <laughs> they told me, and they'll tell you, and I'm relaying to you, never get more than two inches from a microphone. Why? Because every time you double the distance, you lose six decibels. That's a pretty great loss, actually, for just being a few extra inches away. I'm not making it up. Here's where I learned it. I'm not going to argue with these geniuses. 
it's true. I've proven it so many times. And so what you want to do is never be more than two inches. Now, one of the things that you got to watch the plosives, what are plosives? Each one of us have exit air. And if you speak straight into the microphone, it will cause the diaphragm to go down into the voice coil and produce a lot of those P-pops. And some, some guys gals have a lot of air. One of the things we do with all of our microphones is it's omnidirectional on the front. No other microphone does this. None. Watch this screen. As I move and you listen, it didn't change sound. It's the same. However, mm -hmm, I'm going to unplug this. You remember these? <laughs> oh, yeah. 65 years old. Only ego is driving them. And listen what happens. No wonder everybody has to be right here. If I move it off, it's gone. Unlike what you heard from all of our microphones. You know why I did this? Joe Walsh. He said, build me a microphone that I don't have to be right here. And if you ever watch broadcasters, I was going to say, is that like your PR40 or 781? Yeah, they're all like that. They're all like that. Yep. I'll get into that in a minute. You'll notice that, again, we can move off no problem. But a lot of broadcasters, they'll have a microphone in the boom. They don't talk into it. They talk across, but they can't do that with some of the microphones. They still have to be stuck right in front of it. But uh, if you talk across it, it works great. Joe said, well, let me tell you something. I need a microphone to mic my instruments and sometimes vocals, but make it so it has a lot of ear rejection. And so I did. It was fun working with Joe because we're two hams and we're able to do anything. <laughs> Same thing here. You can move around. You can move it around. But then watch this. It's the only microphone on the market by any manufacturer. I know all you RE20s and all that guy. Uh-uh. No, no. Watch and listen. ADB of rear rejection. It's gone. Oh, it's still working. It's 40 down. It really makes things happen. We're using it for all kinds of, of other things. And, of course, DJs love it because they can move around. And it's got this great bottom end. It's the only microphone, dynamic microphone, that does 28 cycles on the low end to 18 on the top. The other thing that everybody thinks is so great. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, is that the one in your hand right now, a PR40 itself? This is a PR form. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing I'm using as well here. Signed by Mr. Joe Walsh. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's great. Uh, we make it in all kinds of different colors, but I love this microphone and so do many, many others. A lot of artists are using it. We use the capsules in a that'll go onto the wireless microphones. We don't build the transmitters. Why do that? Sure did a nice job, but they sure screwed up the element. So we screw in a PR40 or PR30. That's what Carrie Underwood, Keith Urban, how many? So many artists today are using our capsules on their wireless. And uh, I'm really proud of that because I help people. That was my whole goal. Uh, I didn't know where this was going. It was just something that 
we needed to learn, and I learned it again from Paul Klipsch. I learned it from the audio encyclopedia about the power of focus. You never heard about power of focus, and all of these have it. All of our microphones are like that. So do you need a pop filter with your microphones, or you don't need that? on? Well, we have one inside, so it's not always necessary. It depends on how your voice is with and then this is the podcaster's dream microphone. Well, as I, this is a 40 with the last octave gone. It really works great. It had big, me low end for some of the things, and it works so very well. And I'm very proud of it. But the PR40s used everywhere now. We're so proud. I'm really happy with this microphone myself. That's what, exactly what I'm using here on this episode. That's Martina McBride's studio. For 35 years, we've been the leading choice of the contest DXers. Let me change the microphone. I work with the guys and gals that are on the expeditions. After all, they, they're the guys that use it. I listened to them, and I took their ideas on this one. They wanted a boom that would go both ways, left or right. A balance control. So left to right, if you have a little hard, hard of hearing on one or the other, there you go. All of our headsets, because I hear guys on the air, everyone, oh, hi, headset. My ears, you did not read the instructions. <laughs> <laughs> all of them have a steel band. And all you have to do is adjust it. It's very simple. And you can have a very comfortable pinhead like me, but you have a wider head. There you go. The other thing we did is I put a jack so that if you're doing logging and stuff, well, you put you plug your logger into the side right here in that log jack. You don't have to have Y cables and all that. And then I blew the top off of the headphone market. We're the only company in the last, I think it's been about 14 years now. No other company does this. It's got a phasing control. Why do you need a phasing control? That is a good question. You listen to a pileup, and you hear this little bitty wiki back here. You reverse the phases of the headphones, and you can move him up front. You can actually move signals around in your head acoustically. No other company does that. Wow. I don't understand it. We also make the elements for that. We started out with our HC5. We now call it an HC7. Look at, the, look at that. There's no low end in it. And it's got that 10 dB spike at 5K. We do it for you. That's why you're seeing so many of the top expeditions using. And it, it's about phasing. That Phasing is one of my favorite subjects. It affects the antenna, everything else. I want to unplug this because... You're never going to forget this. <laughs> a lot of things I hope you're watching and listening, paying attention, making notes. I have two PR-22s. It's a microphone that Paul Rogers wanted me to build for him. They uh, are identical. I have them on a Y cord. I don't playing any games. I got a Y cord, so they both are in the same. I'm not touching EQ, not touching anything. Oh, wow. Here's an interesting thing. If you double your power, how many decibel? Uh, what, three? How about three? Can you hear 3 dB? No. Watch and see if you can. Here we go. I'm going to bring this microphone up. And when I do, 
here comes the audio. There it is. When I look at my mixer, it's 3dB. I'm going to take 3dB away. And when I did, you couldn't hear it. Why? Because the human ear can barely detect it. If it would be in an echo chamber, a big scientific studio, you might. But doubling your power is not the answer. Think about it. And so that's a little side note, but that's not why I did this. I have this magic little plug. This magic little plug is backwards. Pin three is hooked to two, and two is hooked to three. Huh. And I'm going to plug it to the side. Well, big deal, Heil. <laughs> it still works just fine, and it sounds just like this one, doesn't it? There's only one situation. When you talk into this one, the diaphragm goes down like normal. With this one that's out of phase, it comes up. When you talk into two of them, two signals out of phase, watch and listen. Nothing. They cancel. It does. That's, that's incredible. How many hours do we have? It's my favorite subject. Because this is how your antennas work. Some idiot piles on your frequency and you're working a guy in a nice conversation. He comes up. You hit the notch button on your receiver. He's gone. How does that work? It took him out of phase, and he is gone. And there's just so many things. I have a whole hour on antennas and a lot of some phase arrays and how an antenna works. A lot of people don't know how they're wired. Yeah. Let me unplug this. Huh. And it's why I do all these. This is number, I think it's number 300 and... 29 or somewhere in that I've done since February 2020 when pandemic started. I couldn't go around live to the shows and the ham fest, but I wanted to continue this and it's even better because I have all my toys here. But phasing is so important. Oh, this is an incredible presentation for sure. Check this out. How did Wes Shum, when he brought single sideband to ham radio, it wasn't Art Collins, by the way. He was six years late to the party. How did Wes Shum at Central Electronics get rid of the carrier? How did he get rid of the other sideband? How's your notch filter work? How's your Yagi work? It's all about phasing. And two six days cancel. Here's a really good diagram of that. In phase, we're good. We got plus and minus. But if they're out of phase, uh, hello. It's so simple. This is why I don't understand why the ham radio companies still build their unbalanced microphones. Here's a balanced microphone. The microphone has two outputs, a plus and a minus. And your transceiver, I don't care what it is, they all have a differential mic preamp, but none of it. They use the plus side. Well, now, look what happens here. We have got plus going up on top, minus in the bottom. You see they're, they're against each other. They're not the same. But what happens on that blue line? That's noise. It's not plus, minus. Don't know it. It doesn't make it through the, the amplifier. These are all such simple things. And how did Dr. Yagi do this one? They didn't have incredible spectrum analyzers and stuff like that. In the 20s, he had a real strength meter, and he went out and 
set the field strengthener, had a resonant dipole, resonant, mounted it on the boom. And he had a, a group of aluminum, went out in wavelengths, eighth wave, quarter wave, half wave. If he'd go in between those, the strength meter dropped at certain points, especially with wave, he could get gain, no batteries needed. But if he went behind at a certain place and longer, it was out of his, you just saw what happened. And so these are all incredible things. Phased arrays, sounds like a big deal, and it kind of is, but pretty simple. Here's a 75 meter array that I did. It's simple. 64 foot apart, resonant dipoles, 64 foot high. Wow. Now you come down the re with the 0.66 velocity. That's very important. 126 foot. And look what happens to it, though. It goes to a T, and then it keeps going in that red. That's the delay line. This, this is 500 feet from the station. And I can select with a remote antenna relay. I use a Maritron. You can also use the DX engineering. If I switch it to the left, that's the driven element. And that puts the other element, aha, delayed out of phase. That's why your reflector works like that. And it's pretty simple to do, really. It, and I just, I love phased arrays. You can do it with verticals, same deal, same deal. There's the switch box, but I don't like rotary controls. Hmm. So I go to Antique Electric Supply, and I bought a bunch of Les Paul guitar switches. And you can see how I can switch all them back and forth. We have a 75-meter east-west, 40-meter east-west. There you are, Antique Electric Supply. Write that down. Go look at their website website here behind me i have all of that but the colored ones are switching my different transceivers <laughs> that's quite a system built there yeah there's 35 relays behind me wow <laughs> but that's, that's okay <laughs> absolutely i switch all this stuff around from these two consoles it really really is cool that's all mostly uh, vintage stuff the other thing about it is I read years ago, when I first got my extra license, I read a thing that Art Collins had written. I want you to pay attention. This could be the most important thing I've told you tonight. A publication from Collins stated, most transmitting antennas of resonant, resonant, I do not want any unresonant antennas and tuners and crap. It's resonant dimensions. Elevated at a quarter wave of ground, that is as close to 100% efficiency as possible. What's he talking about? This. Your antenna has two rays. Direct ray, reflected off the ground ray. Now, if you could bring those together, think what you could do to your signal. It would increase. How do you do that? by the distance. When I first got my extra license, I'd been reading some of this, so I tried it. We had a bunch of guys. We had a guy in California, a guy in Florida, a guy in Parma, Ohio, and one guy at the Collins plant. He worked late night working their comm center. I had a couple of towers. I have a resonant antenna, 40 meters, 
resonant. You will never hear Bile talk about anything that's not resonant. I don't want to hear about tuners. I don't want to hear about any of that. <laughs> resonant to the band I'm working. Okay. Now, that was only up at about 20 feet. But every night we'd come on air, I'd come on the air with that so we could see what the atmosphere was doing. The first night I came on, I went up to 30 feet, eh, did a little bit. Next night I came on, I had went out during the day, raised up to 40 feet. Now you would think it would be louder. No, it wasn't stronger. It was a little bit. The next night I come back and put it at 33 and aha, eighth wave. Oh, Art Collins was right. We gained signal at that height. The next night I said, okay, I went up to 66 foot and they thought they put amplifier on. It's all about that reflected ray. And I don't ever remember reading this anywhere. And it really bugs me. All antennas should be resonant. There's nothing like a resonant dipole. Nothing. I absolutely agree with you on that one. Yeah, all these people get wound up in their off-center of fed lube, whatever. If you want two band, you can do this. Works very well. Put some a couple of coils, but don't go any further. If you're going to do 20 meters, you build a 20 meter one, and so on. It's just a wonderful thing, and you can do it simple. I did the nation one time. I, I spent two dollars and forty-five minutes for a 75 meter dipole, a speaker wire, and an old top off of a switch box. It's just wonderful to be able to do these things. But there's so much more, Mike. Yeah, with the price of wire a day, it's probably uh, probably ten times that amount. But <laughs> yeah, things aren't quite that cheap now. They, I have so much more attic antennas and so on. That's some of the things that we come back and do sometime. And of course, the pine board. I hope a lot of you remember that. Still on. We still have people buying the pine board. You can buy the kit, antique electric supply. You can buy the power supply kit, and you can buy the microphone equalizer and final. And it, it's really wonderful. That project ended up as a lead article on the cover of QST in 92. Again, I was very, very humbled. And I don't do this for all that. I do it to help you. It's amazing because it's how I learned all this stuff myself. Yep. Bob, it's one of those things where this is the second presentation you've kind of given and first time here on the Ham Radio Guy podcast, but just one of those things that even some of the things you've talked about is like, it kind of resonated with your first time, but it really kind of pick up on a little bit more the second time listening to you and how important some of these things around sound and audio and equalization. And I know you have your, is a parametric device that you also, yep. that you sell for, it's right around two hundred dollar range or something like that, but yeah, we'll get into that in a minute here to close, but I want to remind everybody this because a lot of people don't know this and it really, really bothers me. When I first got into ham radio in 1956, most everything was A. And along about 59, it becomes, I mean, wars. The sidebanders came on and they would just plop down wherever they wanted. And so we ended up with a real war in our hand. I know one instance where a guy in Paducah, major AM operator, he kept getting bugged by a guy down in Tennessee on sideband with his new sideband rig, and he didn't care where it came. The guy in Kentucky went and visited him. 
the guy in Tennessee opened his door, and here's the guy from the Kentucky standing with a shotgun. Nothing got hurt, but he sure got his attention. Here's <laughs> what they did. They got together with a number of AM ops, and they up an AM window. And on 20 years, but then it just kind of subsided. The new ops came in, and that was it. Well, it's still there. Wow. The ARRL doesn't want to talk about it, and it's really sad. 3870 to 30. Please reserve that. The AM ops. We're Chris Rolls. We can't move. You guys with the sideband, we can go anywhere. 7292.95. And it's just so important that we take care of that. And, uh, all of my, my gear, we. I just I love AM. I just love it, that, and I've been there since forever. Oh, one of my last things I want to do for you. I'm chewing up a lot of your time. I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. Well, we're glad to have you on here. So, not a problem. The whole deal is that these receivers have terrible speakers. Well, hi, I bought a matching speaker. You got a little junky speaker, four or five inch, stuck in a hundred dollar box, and you paid two hundred bucks for it. <laughs> Yep. You're still using the one watt amp, even the big rigs, one watt at about 10% distortion. Does no one ever tell you that? No, because they don't want to publish it. Well, I'm publishing it, and I did something about it. So what I did is I built a speaker, a bird speaker of 25 watts at 0.1%, not 10 like your transceiver. It's 25. Why would you have that much power? You don't need it. Because of headroom. We barely get it open. And so we don't use much. Look at that speaker, how big it is in the magnet. Right. Well, it's balanced line in, of course. And then you have this little guy. What I built was it's a parametric equalizer that allows us to dial up whatever we need. And that really, really plays. But nobody's ever done it. Well, we did it. And we did it really right. Let me uh, switch this around. I have a great demonstration of the parametric receive audio. And I'm really proud of this because it took a long time for me to, to make this happen. First of all, it has an input that comes from your transceiver you use your speaker out at a very low level and that's not distorted because you're not driving any then we have a high control that's at 6k we have a mid control but there's two of them because that is parametric and then the low is at 160 hertz so you want to roll off the low i usually roll up just a tad high it also has a record out Wow. That's how I made the recording. You're going to hear in a minute. You don't have to have Y cords. You plug that into your computer or tape recorder or whatever, and that's wonderful. Well, these guys, two very low distortion headphone amplifiers. Your logger and your operator are people that are hard of hearing, left side, right side at different levels. I have a number of these being used in people's televisions, me being one of them. <laughs> it's wonderful because audio and television. It's multi-purpose. I have a, a recording that I did off air on 20 meters, 
and let's see if we can get this rocking and rolling. I can copy it. India is Bravo Alima Bravos. DIABLB calling invites. Sierra, and we're able to really understand the words better. Yeah. And I'm very, very, very proud of this. Uh, so many are out there in use and so many people are telling me how it really helps them. And I know it does because I use it every day. And I wouldn't be without it. It's a wonderful product. Parametric receive audios. It's one of those things as you get older, your hearing doesn't get any better. So I'm sure that will help improve it quite a bit as well. So definitely I've looked at this a couple of times and I, I may look at investing that a little bit more a little sooner. Yeah. We also have a lot of this in our handbook. If you don't have one of these, most of the dealers have them. But if you order it on our website, why I autograph it for you. <laughs> oh, very cool. Last but not least, it's a great honor that happened uh, about eight years ago. We were inducted into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We're the only manufacturer there. Oh, wow. The rock people thought, well, you know, all these guys we got in here, all these players, how did they get here without? the sound for their tours and their recording studios and we you're looking at behind me there is the quadraphonic mixer that i built for quadraphenia for the who i was with them for six years did not know that that was really something and our amplifiers and speakers we were the first ones to do monitors and was ham radio you notice on the picture in the lower that little uh, slant well, if you did that underneath the guy's microphone, it would feed back, right? No. How did I do that? Amazing. <laughs> Ham radio. Ham radio, exactly. It just blew all the artists away. Like, hey, that don't feed back. Well, why? And I didn't get into discussion. I just told them it's something we did. We also had the talk box in there and other things that we did. That was very cool. And then... A couple of years ago, I was honored with an honor PhD degree by Mizzou University for music and electronics. And all of this is just, it's so wonderful that Ham Radio did it all. And I'm thrilled to be able to share a lot of it with you. And I do hope that if you have any questions, I'm always here for you. I, I spend a good deal of my time in this studio answering questions for people. Send me an email, we'll get on phone, we'll get on Zoom, whatever. So there you go for now. Well, Bob, I appreciate that. I mean, there's just so much to learn from you and always a ton of stuff that you've shared in many presentations and a few of them I've seen with other clubs and that you're, I think you're still doing a lot of those presentations to clubs today, aren't you? Oh yeah, three or four a week. <laughs> yeah, and, well, and this is just one of them that you were able to do this evening. And I, I again, I do appreciate and thank you for coming on to the Ham Radio Guy podcast here and joining me here this evening. You know, it's always great talking with you. And I hope that 
those listening will learn a little bit about the parametric and sounds and why it's important for ham radio on our audio and getting out and creating that best sound that you know one can have doing dx or net controls or just contesting and hopefully that will be helpful to everyone so thank you for sharing all that with us this evening so i think you wanted to leave us with something as well Seven three, everybody. I appreciate the time, and Marvin will be back and do some more. Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you again, Bob. Just give him a minute here while Bob gets set up for the organ. He's going to give us a few minutes of playing here. Something he started at when he was young, at seven years old, learning the organ. So let's listen to him for just a few minutes here. Play. Bob, thank you very much. Uh, that's a great job, and thank you for uh, playing a, just a moment tone there for, uh, for us and, and letting us enjoy that musical organ. Thank you again, Bob. I appreciate you coming on the show here. Thank you for playing that. That was great. Thank you. Thanks to be here. We'll come back sometime and do more. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we'll see you at maybe Hanvention or something. Okay. All right. Well, have a good evening, and thank you again, and appreciate all the info, and uh, you take care. Bye-bye. 73, Bob. W0MBT. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there you go. Mr. Bob Heil, K9EID. With that, we'll take you into uh, a little bit of editorial here. And this is uh, talking again about the Bouvet Island that I commented on about two weeks ago. I wanted to provide a little further insight on this story. And this is coming to you from Amateur Radio Weekly where I can find more of the story. The Bouvet Island, in my opinion, should be scrutinized and life and safety were put at risk during this trip, along with, I think, critical decision-making skills, ethics, the process, the trip planning, 
all had maybe compromised a little bit. And here's why. This trip, you know, has not been well shared in terms of laying out the maps and the plans and pictures and stuff that were shared supposedly on the Facebook page. Other trips in the past have usually, you know, shared the major de-expedition. But for this trip, the article was discussing that it's not certain that the crew had the proper permissions for landing on the island and whether, you know, the helicopter permit was, you know, enough in itself to get on there. But there was no helicopters used in this expedition. You know, the close calls for dangers that the crews risked in getting off the main boat and taking small Kodiaks over to the island, and they did this all in heavy surf. One of the things that was noted in the article was that someone had waders on, and that's almost like trying to commit suicide with with heavy surf and, and waves coming in. But they got on these Kodiaks and went from the main boat over to the island, and, you know, they did that with only limited supplies, such as food and, you know, enough for some shelter and transport, you know, basic survival for the crew. But the fact that it really wasn't enough, they didn't have enough to supply them for multiple days. And they took, you know, just a few radios and things with them at the same time, waterproof bags and whatnot. They had limited heat and power. They planned on having big diesel generator there, but they couldn't get the the diesel generator off the boat. So they only had like like Honda generators. In my opinion, you know, did the passion to make contacts and get on the air, get pushed ahead of safety? Who made these decisions? Was it the team lead, the boat captain, a guide? Who was really in charge of this that, you know, made some of these critical decisions and put the life and and safety of these nine men doing the de-expedition ahead of all those critical things like, you know, safety and survival? This is a situation that could have turned bad and turned this de-expedition into a rescue mission. And I read somewhere in the article or or another article, I've read several articles on this, was that rescue is potentially a week away, getting a plane or helicopter out there because of the surf and weather and the distance of Bouvet Island being out in the middle of the ocean there uh, where it's at. And then I believe it's off the Atlantic there, way down there, way south of South Africa. And this trip was, you know, funded by the DX International community. And, you know, those sponsors, I I believe, in my opinion, deserve answers to the reckless endangerment that put these people's lives at danger and at risk. But, you know, it not only puts this question to this trip, but I think future de-expeditions as well. And the accreditation and maybe the limit to, you know, future operations maybe should be strictly regulated. And if it is, who does that? Is that at the hands of the ARRL? This could turn a serious accident into a potential litigation, you know, as the article discussed a little bit further. So it's something to think about. I'd always think I'd like to go on a de-expedition myself, but after reading things like this, it kind of makes me want to consider if, I thought, if I'd really want to do that or not. And will this change how the DX community supports future trips? That should be considered as well. So there's a lot of things here to be taken into consideration and be concerned with. It's an interesting article to read uh, if you've not, uh, you know, a lot of people was really hoping for, had great hopes for this and had a lot of investment in this trip. And so it was really an interesting article with this to go back and look at. If you haven't read much about it, I would recommend that you do. I think it's very important for the amateur radio community and de-expeditions as we move forward. With that, we'll move into a little bit of news here. Amateur Radio Digital Communications, ARDC, 
has awarded a $420,000 grant to one of the first of 2023 to develop and document free DV and open source amateur radio technology. This grant will be used to help advocate for the state of art in HF digital voice and promote it in its use. In other news, schools set to talk with astronauts via amateur radio satellite on the International Space Station. It's announced that several schools are planning to communicate with orbiting astronauts in the coming weeks. These schools will work to inspire students to develop interest in science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics STEAM careers. So it's kind of went from STEM to STEAM, adding arts and mathematics in there. Part of this is that four astronauts, three of them licensed and amateur radio operators, have just arrived on the ISS as of Friday, March 3rd, for a six-month stay in orbit. One of them, astronauts Sultan Al-Niyade, if I pronounce that correct, KI-5VTV, is also making his first trip into space. This crew, they call it the Crew 6, took a place a day earlier from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The members of the team are Mission Commander Stephen Bowen, KI-5BKB, he's a pilot Warren Woody, Hoberg, KB-3HTZ, Ross Cosmos, Andrew Fedev, who, like Al Nayadi, is making his first space flight. This is NASA's sixth crew to use the commercial SpaceX transport system. And finally, uh, in my news here for this week, you've heard about the AM radios being removed from electric cars due to interference. Several officials in the U.S. have joined together and become outspoken about the AM broadcast and how important it is to vital public radio systems. This is essential to the emergency alert system. In fact, this matter deserves attention. Several automakers, including Tesla, have stopped including AM radios in the electric vehicles due to the electromagnetic interference. Senators are now asking manufacturers to declare their intention on AM and FM radios in vehicles. Remember, this news is sourced from the ARRL News and the AR Newsline information each week. In further news, HamFest, remember these are all in the Delta Division. You have Corinth, Mississippi on April 1st, coming up in just about two weeks. That's no April Fools. Greenville, Tennessee is April 15th, 2023. Charleston area HamFest, I believe it's South Carolina, is in March 18th. And the QSO Today HamFest will be March 25th and 26th. So something new I'd like to be able to add to the show this week and something I haven't done before, but I've heard on some other podcasts, and I thought I'd kind of throw it in there from time to time. I'd like to leave you with a little laughter before we close out the show. So here we go with the dad ham radio joke of the week. I think my ham radio equipment may have fallen in love with me. It hasn't said anything, but I've been picking up a lot of signals. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So uh, there's my first one to try. We'll see if we get any feedback or response from that one. Well, that brings this show to a close this week, and I hope that you enjoyed it. I want to thank Bob Heil for coming on to the show and speaking about audio and how important that is in our amateur radio that we do every day. I hope that you'll submit that subscribe button and share with friends and hope you learned something this week that will help you in your ham radio operations. If you'd like to help support the channel and become a patron, look for me on buymeacoffee.com slash thehamradioguy.com to join today. As always, this is your ham radio buddy in the chair and on the air, the ham radio guy. I say 73. 
W0MET.